0: The point is, is that if you're going to do a retreat, plan carefully about it, knowing that one of the options is uh, some video recordings of some Dhamma Talks from some retreat. They do that on Zoom a lot. And so I would say instead of just doing a Zoom call, just take the videos and go up out, out into the woods. And listen to a video once a day for the the Dharma talk. But other than that, practice the way you know how to practice. Because those retreats are going to teach students how to practice for beginners that are going to be leaving a a couple of key ingredients out. You had asked about uh, retreats. Do you have anything in specific that you mean by that? And by the way, it's good to see you again.
1: (laughs) Likewise, yeah. Um, I'm kind of trying to keep it general, actually. Uh, Leave it open for discussion. I think, I assume you have a different uh, perspective, maybe, than people are used to. with like, (laughs) I don't know, like more hardcore, either Mahasi or Goenka retreats. I assume you might have a different perspective on that. And I'm kind of trying not to bring in any... um, preconceived notions on that. <laughs> Maybe right. to narrow it down, I can say like, like, how do you know when you're ready for a retreat? How long should you go for? And what should you do on the retreat? some general ideas.
0: Oh, that's a completely different question. I thought you wanted me to trash retreats in general, which I'm really prepared to do. Whatever you'd
1: like to do. I mean, please.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but we could talk about what it is. Um, and, and in fact, if we understand the, the background, the nature of the retreats, where some of them have gotten it right and where some of them have gotten it wrong, that will help us getting into the second topic of you planning for your retreat. Okay, so let's topic. Let's uh, see if we can cover both of those things. And uh, um, the first way to talk about it is, is that uh, we can use the word retreat correctly by understanding what the word itself means. To retreat actually means to withdraw or to go away, to find a safe place, basically so when an army retreats in battle and the uh commander gives the bugler or the bugle call to sound retreat uh then he sounds let's see if i can remember retreat never mind it's not important the whole whole point is that um the idea of having a meditation retreat is designed then or it should be designed around getting out of the action and getting away from it all, finding a safe place. And that when the Buddha would uh, recommend that to students, he would say, go to the forest, to the foot of a tree, to an empty hut or a pile of straw and sit down. And not one of the items on any of the lists that he has, because that's in the Sutra, Sutras in 138. It's, I mean, it's just all over the place. That whole little phrasing, of um, that, in fact, in in Sutra number 38, he it's talked about in the sense that when someone gets in touch with the teachings of the Dhamma and runs across to Buddha, then they become inspired to practice, and so they. They go about doing the things of changing the lifestyle and then they go into retreat. They go in, in, into the forest, into a hut, into an empty hut, etc. like that. And so we're actually looking at the, the correct concept. But that the concept that we're talking about here is not the concept of going into the retreat. We're talking about the concept of doing a meditation retreat, completely different world. <laughs> right at least for most people most people they would think that they would want to go in retreat and so they sign up and go to a meditation retreat but there's a big difference so in that regard um one of the differences is that if you have a meditation retreat you are basically boxing yourself into a format and the reason that you're boxing yourself into a format is because you need a box one size fits all people in the in the meditation hall (laughs) and since almost all meditation retreats are done in such a way that many people don't get any value out of it and so they only do one retreat in fact it's quite well known um but I've got some inside information about it because I've got a friend who's on the inside at one of the Goenka centers where they, uh, where they actually keep this kind of data. If you do a Goenka retreat, you've got to fill out a form that, that's put into a database. Okay. And the database shows that if people do a second retreat, it's in general seven years after they do a first retreat.
1: <laughs> that's a long time
0: which means then that most of the people who are doing this retreat are new meditators not a repeat audience so this is not second grade this is always the meditation retreat is always for first graders mm-hmm. It's always uh, number 101. You never get any further than that. That's in fact the reason why after all those retreats that I did with Gawanka, I finally left because I knew that there was something missing here. But I learned enough about Dhamma to know that he was missing something, and so I went off seeking it. Boy, did I get a load of it when I got to Thailand. But uh, (laughs) that's a whole different story. The point is, is that the retreats are always for beginners and yet even then they do not give all of the beginners the things they need to begin it would be like uh, a, a student or an apprentice to a carpenter and a carpenter would say, OK, I'm going to train you to be a carpenter, but you've got to spend 10 years with me with hammers and nails. And when you get really good at hammers and nails, we'll teach you how to do sawing. <laughs> and that seems to be the way that the retreats are set up. So they so are talking about in-
1: Goenka in particular here? I'm or, talking about
0: yeah. Goenka in particular, but I'm also talking about all of the systems that have made it to the West now. Because all of the systems are based upon Goenka. Goenka was the, was the door opener for the West. And there are, I guess, about 100 retreat centers all over the place. Many of them in, in the United States now. Yeah, um, that's a ton of them. <laughs> so, uh, also, the system of the Goenka comes out of Burma. And so, uh, the Burmese system is very similar to the Gowanka method, and and in fact, they've got a lot of similarities because they're both correct. (laughs) So, there's going to be a lot of similarities. Uh, The problem is, is that they're both missing some key ingredients, and they seem to both be missing the same key ingredient. And that has to do with the Eightfold Noble Path, most specifically, one's right effort. But let's not go into right effort and how to do a retreat correctly. Let's just stay with how retreats are taught in general. It is that they're missing some of these key ingredients. And one of them is one's right effort. Our, our relationship to the breath and our relationship to the mind. That normally in the West they see it as an observer's relationship. Like you were a, um, a visitor to a football game and that those people out there are playing the game and you're just here in the stands to enjoy the game. And that's how a lot of people sit down for meditation without understanding that, hey, they're not really in the stands. They're really the ones who are on the field. Yeah. And not only that, but guess what? You're the only one on the field, but you're a crowd and you think that it's a whole bunch of other people when in fact all of those <laughs> various components are you and you're playing this game. Yep. once we begin to understand that we begin to think maybe I need some teamwork up here <laughs> but most maybe people in fact will, right. but but most people can go through a, a meditation retreat following the rules more or less and not getting much benefit out of it that one of the points about the Buddha going to the uh, uh, to the forest or to a foot of a tree or to an empty hut would be that you and by the way you don't take your laptop you Mm -hmm. don't take your notebooks you don't take your sack full of books your backpack full of books and notebooks and and uh, uh laptops and cell phones and all of that kind of stuff with you because that's certainly true when they go into the retreats in fact many of the retreats actually have blue bins or they try to keep it. They actually become policemen. They invite you to do a retreat and then they become police. <laughs> sort of a bait and switch. Oh, come enjoy yourself. Relax yourself and by the way, stick up. Give me your passport. <laughs> <Uh-oh>. <laughs> Give me your cell phone. Give me all of your stuff. But the the idea is that when we're going off onto retreat, the best thing is to not bring the world with us. To not bring all those books or that cell phone or that uh, uh laptop or any of that kind of stuff with us that we in fact uh want to literally go into retreat and get away from it all. Yeah. But what happens to brand new students with that is it's sometimes a surprise, sometimes they don't like it, sometimes they actually wind up in a state of not liking the fact that they don't have any of that stuff that they brought with them. If they were really wise, they would have never brought it, and then they would have not been had anything taken away from them.
1: I mean, not having them sounds great to me. I don't
0: know. (laughs) Well... That's the point, then. But many people start resenting it when they begin to look for something else to do because they're bored. They're not practicing correctly, and so they want something to do. And immediately comes to mind: my laptop, my cell phone, and they've got it. They're the cops now. They're the enemy, and so all of this stuff happens. It things that resulted from mm-hmm. the way that the retreats are set up. And yet, there are other ways to do it. In fact, I have a really interesting story that I remember from Gil Fosdale, who had spent a number of years in Japan doing his Zen dude thing. And then he goes to Thailand with the thought, wow, I could sit really well. These Thai people have a real surprise coming when they see me getting here. That was the thought that he had when he got. I don't know who the abbot was or where he was, but the but what happened when he got to the temple is the uh, and the uh, abbot heard his story. He put him in the back of the watch on a personal retreat, hmm. and then he would send envoys or whatever to to see after um, Gil, but that Gil was not able to sit up front with all of the other monks and everything showing off because. <laughs> It was time for him to go into retreat, according to the abbot. This is a much more interesting story, is is that retreats are often done at the right time, and they're always done in seclusion. Now, the whole point of a meditation retreat is for everybody to come here and be in seclusion all at the same time. But in fact, nobody is in seclusion. The seclusion is false. It's fake. All of those kneecaps and all those uh, uh, buns of hair are are in that retreat. There they are. You're not secluded. When they are not out of sight, they are not out of mind. We need to go and get really secluded from the world. And here we have the whole world coming into seclusion with us (laughs) when we go on a retreat. Everyone pretending to be in seclusion. So the question is, can you actually go into a retreat and be in seclusion? Because that's the best opportunity that most people will will ever have. In the beginning, it's really, really hard. But one of the things that actually would make it easy if you really wanted to go in seclusion, just get yourself a tent and a backpack and find yourself your favorite uh, campground that's open, yeah, federal, state, whatever like that, go up into the uh, most remote campground area place there is, pitch your tent, and have some seclusion. <laughs> that's camping is exactly what the monks did. Go to the forest already. <laughs> <laughs> Take your camping equipment and go into seclusion. Well, that's exactly what the Buddha taught, and that's exactly what the monks did, by and large, except that they didn't have to go to a designated campground, because the whole forest there was there in those days as a designated campground. Right. And so the monks are out there in the forest in twos and threes, or small groups or singular, each one of them in seclusion. So that's a way of thinking about it, that we don't need a fancy retreat center. But the people who do need a retreat center, often when, let us say, if they go do a retreat in Asia, they will get very, very simple accommodations because they're uh, a guest in a place that's not used to those kind of crowds. That's completely different than uh, what we have in the United States or in the West. We have centers that people say, oh, I want to be a meditation teacher. But I don't have any place to do my meditation instruction. Let me build a meditation center. And we'll dedicate this meditation center and we'll charge money and I'll be a big face. And we'll, go and we'll be very happy. Never mind that we're hurting a lot of people by inviting him to go do that when we could have been telling them to go to Asia and get into a real retreat. Because hmm. this is the money maker here. This is the kind of retreat this place is.
1: Yeah, the US seems to
0: have no shortage of those. <laughs> and so, though. but there's also in a way no shortage of temples right now because there's about 200 Thai watts and another 150 or so Lao, Cambodian, Burmese, et cetera. But most of the watts in the United States, the majority of them are Thai. And all of these watts can be used as a personal retreat if you know the if you know the monks, so go introduce yourself to the monks at whatever uh, center you have and kind of semi move in <laughs> and you just sleep on the floor just like they do in Asia. but no, in the West, we have this idea of a retreat center with paid retreats and famous teachers, and that's become western Buddhism, and it doesn't even matter which tradition you have, the Mahasis do it, the Zen do it, the Adrianas do it, they're all doing it, I mean, all of them, what we need is a different approach, which is much more like the forest tradition that you find in Thai. When you say the Thai forest tradition, people think that you're talking something unique to Thai. No, it would be better to call it just a forest tradition. Okay. And tradition is all over the place and this is what uh, would be uh, actually following the teachings of the Buddha. There's no place in any sutta where the Buddha says go sign up for a meditation retreat. <laughs> Never, not once. No, what does he do is he says go to a forest, go to a uh, foot of a tree, go to the uh, empty hut. So this is the way that we we look at we In fact we can think of the sleeping bag of the tent as that empty hut and goes up into the high sierras or wherever we want to go so long as it's away from them literally the maddening crowd
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: and so this is what the Watt life is supposed to be like and all of the Watts in the united states will also have that for offer mm. for individuals to go and do an individual retreat now that doesn't mean that that seclusion is how to say that seclusion is to be secluded from the world and all of the unwholesome, so that we can now can have only wholesome things around us, and that would be also including having communication with the teacher. Because even though the gill was out there in the back of the watch for three months, he was also not alone. He was visited. People were checking on him. Okay. How's it going? How's your problem? And, and questions and things like that. So this is a much better way of, of doing it is having occasional contact with a teacher. But that what retreats have become uh were all based upon the Goenka model, which actually became uh he got it from Uba Ken. And Uba Ken worked with several uh high known uh, well quality monks in Burman, especially uh, uh, Ledi Sayadaw, but also Mahasi was involved with it. So when ubay Ken did this, this is the basic source of the retreats. In 1950s, when the Burmese government was getting free from the British government and forming a government for themselves, Uba was designated as the, basically the secretary of um, uh, the treasury for the Burmese government. He was okay. the big whip to do accountant, and with that kind of power, what he wanted to do was to have a two uh, uh, a one week session to, where they could start on Friday of next week. They also that they are not working ending on sad, uh, Saturday and Sunday so that they would have a nine or 10 day retreat. That's where the whole idea of the 10 day retreat came from. It was they show up on Friday and finish the following Monday morning. And that this was a Burmese that was designed for people who were working in the new formed government. They thought that a meditation retreat would be good for the accountants. And so that's where this thing got started. Interesting. As toward, it got started with the monks in Ubaikken as a layman, and he had many students, including Mother Siama and Gowenka and Joseph uh, John, John Campbell, <clears throat> many different students <coughs> who then started to bring this to the West. Then started Burma, and that's where they found Mahasi waiting for them. And so this is why the Mahasi method and the Ubaikin method are kind of intermixed. They all come from Burma. And they all tend to be missing these key ingredients, which is also tends to be missing in all of the meditation centers. And, and, way, and uh, before I talk about it too much, let me go to psychology because psychology she basically has. When I was a trained psychologist, it was kind of a joke that the underclassmen and the and the uh, uh, Ph.D. candidates. It was also uh, all a snicker, as a joke. But it was really a profound, important point. And that was is that a psych therapist dare not tell his client what's actually wrong with the client, even though the psych- Psychologists who spend all of these years and all of this training trying to figure out what's going on with their clients, they dare not tell the client really what their problem is. Why? Why is the question? They might solve it. Right. <laughs> if, they, if they do solve the problem, goodbye, you're going to send me your final bill. <laughs> <laughs> But if the if the if the client does not agree with it, he'll say, "That's not who I am at all. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm out of here." <laughs> okay, so the client, uh, the therapist, risk losing the client, and they have this. Also, happens with meditation. You would not want someone to come into a two week meditation, and do what Sariputta did, and be finished with it all, now would you? Not if you were running paid retreats at $2,000 a pop per person. How many of those people do you want to actually get the point of what you're teaching here? As few as possible. <laughs> but uh, right, That's the whole point, you see, is, is that they want the repeat business but the way that they set it up making it so hard on students, they wind up not getting the repeat business anyway. That most of the retreats are still set up for the brand new beginner. And so, what you have, in fact, is all of these failures who don't go back and do a second retreat will come out with great lauds and read it in all the places of how marvelous that retreat was. It is so marvelous, I'll not do another one. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. And so, that's what's happening with these retreats is that people are going to retreats not getting what they want out of the retreat and yet still extolling the retreat and so there's always the new business but they don't have a lot of repeat business where really what we want is repeat business an example of that is western buddhism is more like the army and the real teachings of the buddha is more like the marines okay you know what I mean by that? You might the have Army to that Army one the Well, the Army will take anybody. As long as you qualify, in you come. And basically, all you need is to be wearing long pants, and you're in. <laughs> but the Marines, they only want a few good men. Mm. The Navy SEALs, they want to repeat business. They want a few good men and who are going to get really really good at what they're doing yeah okay we want wipers not two two-year uh, recruits and yet the meditation retreats have come have gotten to the point that all we're doing is catering to the new business the new business the new business and there's very little left for those who are really ready to do a retreat So here you have a real retreat, and you don't find a real retreat. All you're finding is retreats for the beginners who are not ready for retreats yet. Yeah. Well, that doesn't mean that you can't go to one of these retreats. In fact, I would want to go to one of those retreats if I had the opportunity for several reasons. One is... uh, to hear what the teacher has to say. And in that regard, I'd want to be at the back so that I could just listen to what he had to say without making any presence known. Okay. Because I would know that if I sat up front and sat there on the first day, two or three hours in a row while everybody else is gone on break just to make a point, then by doing that, I would actually change the teacher's teaching style. Okay. Because he would recognize that he had competition in the house. (laughs) I know that for for a fact, because I've seen it by by other seniors walking into some junior's uh, teacher and literally just taking over by not saying a word, just sitting there. Wow. So. What you can do then is if you're going to go to that retreat, don't go up there with the idea, I know more about how to do a retreat than the guys who are teaching the retreat. That's not really the right attitude to do it. But if you're curious about what he has to say, and it's cheap enough that you can afford it, then you can listen to all that he has to say. Everything else that you do at the retreat, you don't have to do it at the retreat. You can do someplace else. The only thing that you're going to get at that retreat is going to be food and words. The the clothing and the shelter and and the uh, meditation and the time structuring and all of that, you can do right on your own by going into the woods. Yeah. (laughs) But it's still valuable to go do it. That being one of the crowd, in fact, a lot of students do get inspiration by seeing that some students can sit. There's no place to go and nothing to do. We just sit here. Because they can't. They're fidgeting and coughing and what well, I've actually heard students say that quite a lot that they get inspiration from those who can sit. Okay. That if you have a whole crowd of agitated kids, then they don't have any examples for how to sit. And the teacher's not going to be sitting there with them all the time. <laughs> and so when the kids are, you know, when the cat's are away, the mice will play unless there's a cat still there. And yeah, if someone can sense. sit, then everybody will sit. So that would be an advantage. This is one of the reasons why uh, the uh, volunteers are encouraged to sit with the students because they do need a few old hands in those meditation retreats. It really gives an advantage for it. It balances it out. So in that regard, I would recommend that if you're going to go do a retreat, go volunteer and be an assistant. That way you get all the benefits of the retreat and you might be able to do it cost free. As well as be of benefit to someone. Yeah. Yeah, I've never done the
1: Maybe you're talking about the Goenka, I know has that the old students come back and uh, I think they can like earn time towards future retreats. Is that how it works? I've never done one with Goenka,
0: I don't know. I have not heard that. If that's that was not what Goenka would do. Oh wait, they're all free anyway, right? Oh, they're all free anyway, uh with the idea that uh they're completely free for old for new students, but for old students, it would be Donna, but then on the last day of the retreat, all the new students are said, You've just done this retreat, you're an old student now, give me, give me, give me, give me." Yeah. <laughs> So that's part of the sales technique is, is that it's free for new students, but you become an old student while you're in the but cool. even for the old students, it's still Donna. But yeah, okay. Now that it's Donna, now they have, a um, let us say, a, 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 a way to twist your arm. But that's the right way to do it anyway. That in fact, uh, Donna only is the way that all the retreats are run in Asia. If Gawanka ran a retreat in India and charged money for it, probably the local town would run him out of town. (laughs) Then you just don't do that kind of stuff. That even Dhamma books are supposed to be free if you go to the Watt to get them. There are books that you have to pay for if you go to a bookstore or to uh, a bookseller at the uh, bus station, yeah, you'll pay for the books, but ordinarily, Donna books are given free. Yeah. Freely given. And so it's uh, it's all about uh, Donna. that in a way, I will never be able to pay repay Watson and Mo and Bhikkhu Buddha Das and Achan Po for all the benefits that I've gotten from them. Never be able to pay them back. But it's not a matter of paying it back anyway. It really is a matter uh You probably heard the phrase pay, pay forward rather than pay back. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. Okay. The paying paying forward has to do with the way that in our society we raise children. Yes, our, our parents were very, very good to us in a way that we should have great gratitude for them and to help our parents. But the real pay is that we treat our children as well or better than we were treated. So we pass this down. And so we pay it forward to the next generation. That's how we do with the Dhamma. The payback is not paying back what so or Bhikkhu Buddha Das or Achan Po is paying the Dhamma forward. Paying my dues, paying my debts, is paying it to you guys. Well, thank you for that. This, You're doing this an excellent is my job. <laughs> <laughs> That's not even the important part. <laughs> but then I'm out there doing it. That's the important part. So um, the giving or the paying forward so that I'm not in debt to Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Because mm. this is exactly what he would expect. is for the whole Dharma. No one could ever pay the Buddha back. But Sariputta didn't try to pay the Buddha back. He paid it forward by the next generation of students. So, if we can find a uh, a location or a place, the dhana then is almost always received and paid back in Dhamma, not in dollars. That mm. <laughs> that's the way to look at it, is, is so long as the individual in this particular moment can sustain this without money, or without money from the Dhamma, then let's do that so that we can leave the Dhamma completely free. And this is the way that the wats and temples in Asia have operated. That in fact, this is kind of a joke, but it's a standing joke. And that is the Westerner goes in and says, I want to make a donation. And somebody will says, well, There's a donation box in there. And they go and they hunt and they hunt and they hunt. And they can't find the donation box. Because somebody just moved us around to the back of something or another. I've seen donation boxes behind the Buddha Rupa, one of the sacred places where nobody goes.
1: <laughs> That's pretty clever.
0: Yeah, it's like the donations are not important.
1: Maybe he'll get so tired looking for the donation box that he's going to sit down and meditate.
0: <laughs> Maybe so. Or the other side of it is is that nobody knows who's got the key to the donation box. Yeah. <laughs> And so the donation box gets heavy and nobody opens it. And finally, after the abbot dies, they decide to do something and nobody knows where the key is. They break the lock and open it. (laughs) There's a trailer in there. (laughs) Over 15 Uh years of donations and nobody's bothered to open the box. Well, that's partly because generally when a wad is built on land, the land is already owned. It was never a mortgage. And when buildings are built, they're always built with someone else's money. So that there's never any ongoing expenses at the Watt other than, for instance, running water and electricity would be about the only thing that they would have as a a payment. Because of that, they, they don't think much about money. Money is not even an item on the list. But within the Western mentality, it's either pay as you play or it's donate instead. Yeah. And that a lot of Westerners are complaining is, is that there's a lot of freeloaders, there's a lot of freeloaders who, if I do a donna only retreat, three or four or half a dozen or ten or more of them will be in that retreat. They won't make any payments at all. You know something? Those are your real dhamma dudes. Those are the ones you want to keep coming back and coming back and coming back for free to get the dhamma because they're the next generation's teachers. Yeah. But when we're operating it for the the coin, when we want the money, then we don't want people in there who are freeloaders. We only want paying customers. But if we have a really genuinely open heart about that, then there will be those who can see that, who may have, in fact, money, who are willing to spend 10 times what the retreat would have cost. And so they'll donate for a free retreat $20,000 to so let the retreat run and everybody goes free. That happens in India, in Thailand and in India. There's some wow. money bags will come by and say, okay, I'm going to donate for this whole next retreat. And nobody has to have any generosity or donations or nothing. It's already paid for. And that awesome. will get the ball rolling so that the next retreat can be free because the donations that came in for this retreat enough to keep all the donations uh, to keep get the next retreat or two going without any hint or thought about donations but they themselves will generate more donations that'll get the next retreat going so it's nobody has like to talk about it but when we re- when money becomes an item when we've got a mortgage when we got expenses or when we've got money to make so that I could be a big face teacher. I mean, I'm so famous because I make a lot of money or vice versa. I hear that someone in America wants a jet. And so he's now becoming a televangelist for Buddhism. For Buddhism. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Oh boy. <laughs> I think that's a joke. <laughs> but in any case, that's what it is like, is, is that big meditation teachers want a big face because they're making a lot of money and got a famous retreat center to where in Asia the the place that a monk lives is associated with him only in that way that in fact um many very high quality famous monks would come and stay at Wat Suan Mok for quite a while and then go someplace else and so uh a particular monk being associated with a particular monastery is not as hard and fast as it is in the west where a particular teacher is associated with a particular meditation center okay there's very like much more
1: of the centers and stuff like that more traveling exactly
0: around. it has to do with the ownership of the center to where nobody in thailand actually owns any of the white property hmm. All the land is actually owned and managed by um, a royal delegation called the Bureau of Religious Affairs. It's actually a translation. But the Bureau of, of Religious Affairs is actually on the board, or the Bureau is all monks. But they do have a staff of laypeople who actually manage all of the, um, they keep track of all the ordinations, all the deaths, and all of the property ownership. Okay. So that people at the local want don't get into a fight over who's who or who owns what because neither one of them know, own it and they both know that. That's not true in the United States. In fact, I came to understand with a situation with with Buddhists in uh, North Carolina court that about a third of all of the court cases in North Carolina right now is over who owns that old church property <laughs> now that the church is closed. Who owns that property. Oh boy.
1: So is it the, the lay people in the U.S. who will like uh, put money in towards the Watt or are they put the money in in the past for the Watts here?
0: That's actually happened, right. So somebody will stand for the mortgage on the property that is now becoming the Watt property, but it's been built up. New hill buildings have been built. The property is evaluated and all and the mortgage is paid off and now thousand dollars now winds up being worth seven hundred thousand dollars and the guy who had his name on that mortgage he wants he, he wants that seven hundred thousand even though it was paid for by a whole group of people and he hmm. doesn't really own it, but on paper he owns it. And off to the court they go. And guess what? In North Carolina, he almost always wins the case. And he owns the property. And so all the churchgoers have to go join and find another church building to have. Whether it's Buddhist or whatever, that's the U.S. style, never mind the religion. Where here in Thailand, it's different than that, but we're way off topic now. But that actually is enforceable in the sense of the retreats, too that whoever owns the retreat property determines who's going to be the teacher there. And if the teacher is the one who owns the property, he's almost wedded himself to that property. And in that regard, he's not really a teacher. He's actually a retreat center manager who just happens to teach. But he becomes famous for being a teacher, but his real business is retreat center management. That doesn't happen at all in Thailand because the retreat center management, has is the monks don't do any of that. That's all done by lay people, but the monks do with the building any way that they want to.
1: Mm.
0: And so if they want to run a retreat, then the people are okay with that, that the building that they own is used for the retreat. But it would be hard to walk into some big retreat center in the United States and say, hey, could we do our own retreat in your building? Can I advertise for my retreat that I'm going to do in your building? Will you just shovel, you know, just stand aside? Because, I mean, after all, your building is free right now. You only run retreats from the 1st until the 10th, and you've got this time free. Can we just come into your building and run a retreat? The answer is always going to be, no. Maybe for the right price? I don't know. All right, <laughs> oh, right. Now we've got price involved. So that's the problem with the distinction between the Western mentality and the Asian mentality. And for that reason, retreat centers have become a deal in the West that don't even exist in Asia. Mm. Perhaps the uh, the distinction would be the Goenka centers. There's actually a big Goenka center in uh, in Thailand. The reason I know all about it is because the story is, is that the people who go to that center on a regular basis, they go by busloads out of Bangkok into that retreat center, then they get back on the bus and come down to Wat Suan Mok and do retreats down here. And then they go back to Bangkok for the rest of the month. And there's a whole busload of old ladies who do that. And because of that, there's a close connection between Wat Suan Mok and the retreat center the Goenka Center up north.
1: That's interesting, okay.
0: Yes, in fact, that's kind of how they learned to do retreats at Wat Suan Mok because the students were telling them what they learned at the Goenka Center. <laughs> But anyway, the point is, is that if you're going to do a retreat, plan carefully about it, knowing that one of the options is uh, some video recordings of some Dhamma Talks from some retreat. They do that on Zoom a lot. And so I would say instead of just doing a Zoom call, just take the videos and go up out into the woods and listen to a video once a day for the, for the Dharma talk. But other than that, practice the way you know how to practice because those retreats are going to teach students how to practice for beginners that are going to be leaving a, few, a couple of key ingredients out. Okay, so let's finish up with this talk by talking about them, those couple of ingredients that are left out of the retreats that should be in isn't there? The first one has to do with um, relationships to right view, excuse me, right in fact, both of them have to do with right effort. And that um, it's very clearly laid out in some of the suttas, but Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa makes a great big point of it in several of his books on Anapanasati. Every time that he teaches about Anapanasati, he makes this point ...about how to approach the breath. But I've also seen it in Mahasi literature that Mahasi also has it. And Mahasi uses words like fall upon, jump on, seize, grasp hold of, or confront. This is the way that we should have a relationship with both the body and the mind in the beginning... And then do that with the feelings also. That whatever object of meditation that we have, we're not going to have an object of meditation the way that we would as an observer. In other words, when we're watching a football game, we kind of keep our eye on the ball and we watch what's happening. But in Anapanasati, we want to grab, we're not going to be sitting in the stands, we're going to take hold of it. Yeah. We're going to seize that object, okay? So that's how they talk about it in the Goenka retreat when he says that when the mind wanders away from the breath, never mind, start again, come back and watch the breath. What that means is, is that the student does not have a lot of, um, uh, way to call it. it, is skin in the game. Mm-hmm. We need to have some skin in the game. What that means is, is that we've actually got to get onto the playing field, hold of that ball. So in the way that we would do that with the breath is by taking control of it. Making sure that with sati, we have a long, deep, relaxed breath. And with sati, we make sure that we have a long, deep out breath. In other words, we literally Take control over the breathing. Mm-hmm. This is, is not taught well in either the Mahasi or the Gowanka. Also done well in either the Zen or the Vedrhyana from what I've gathered. But I'm not an expert on those. But I do know that both the Mahasi, which I have done, and also the Gowanka that I have done, they do not emphasize this the way that the Buddha, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, and Mahasi address it. They let it be an easy breath or uh, just kind of pay attention. They use the word watch the breath, right? We're not going to watch the breath. We're going to grab it by the throat. (laughs) Literally, we're going to take control of the breathing. If you can't control the breathing, then you can't control the mind. If you can't control the mind, you can't control the feelings. What's the point of meditation at all? If you're not going to take charge, and when we do take charge, that gives us the the, the take charge attitude. That yeah, I, I heard can another, do this. Uh, There's
1: another teacher who gave a lot of talks on jhana practice. Who talked about, um, without getting into too much detail, like basically controlling each breath, so you're purely paying attention to your entire body and trying to make each breath the one that will be the most enjoyable with the whole body experience. Instead of just something it be the default, you know, getting shallower and shallower and dollar and dollar, but really having like you're, like you're saying, having skin in the game and making each breath as enjoyable as you can.
0: So yeah, uh, that's that a very up, interesting way up. of phrasing it, but I'm teaching exactly the same thing. I just don't phrase it like that, but yeah, you have to really take control of the breathing, making that breath really pleasurable, allowing yourself to have pleasure. I mean, if you don't think that breathing is pleasurable, stop doing it for five minutes. So he's saying make it pleasurable, and I'm saying investigate the fact that it is actually pleasurable. You don't have to actually make it. You just realize that, wow, this is really good stuff, this breathing. (laughs) Yeah. So we begin to pay attention to it and begin to control it. And we do it with that concept of jumping on it or falling upon it, the way that thieves would fall upon a uh, victim. And so we want to jump on it. We want to seize it, to confront it, to control it. But then we also want to do that exactly the same thing with the mind. But in this case, instead of having long, slow, deep, healthy breaths, wholesome breathing, as opposed to shallow breath, now we're going to take it, we're going to have long, slow, deep, wholesome thoughts rather than shallow, unwholesome thoughts. (laughs) Junk thoughts. thoughts. Thoughts of places to go and things to do. When we see those kind of thoughts, we're going to seize hold of them with kind of the phrase, Aha, I see you, Mara. Aha, I see you, junk thought. And to think I could have had fun instead. And thinking about going to the store when I could have been sitting here in bliss. I'm thinking about going to the bank when I'm really enjoying myself here. Pardon?
1: Yeah, why not have fun right now?
0: Yeah, have fun right now. That's the whole point. So if you can go to do a retreat with that attitude of those two qualities of seizing the mind to be here now and really enjoy it and enjoy the breath. And uh, in fact, a lot of retreats are set in in rural settings anyway. So go take a walk in whatever nature spot that they've been able to manufacture or uh, (laughs) locate in and be with nature. Go to the forest wherever it is. Yeah. And take your pleasure wherever it may be found. Praised by the book is to take pleasure wherever it may be found, so go to the retreat if that's what you have to do, pay the fees, but pay them happily if they take all your books, give them up happily, and all of that so that you can maintain being in a good attitude so on the first day of the retreat when you arrive, arrive with the can do attitude because I've seen many people go into an adi- uh, go into a retreat, let us say um in rebellion to mom. Mom doesn't want you to go do a retreat, but you go do it anyway. And so now you've got all of that anxiety and all this business with mom as you're going about doing what she doesn't want you to do. And that's not the right attitude to start a retreat. In fact, the, the only right attitude to start a retreat is the kind of attitude you want at the end of the retreat. Hot diggity dog, this is great. That's the attitude you want to start with the retreat. That's the attitude you want to keep during the retreat. And that's how you want to end the retreat. It's with that hot diggity dog, this is great stuff.
1: Yeah,
0: a great opportunity to practice. Yeah. And yet very few people go into the retreat with that. Many go in with prayer, with trepidation. Many of them start missing the items that were taken. They start thinking about how bad the retreat center managers are. We're not only stealing their money for the retreat fees, but now they're taking all their books and toys, too. (laughs) And so there's resentment that's built up. And these are all kinds of problems that people have to deal with that they wouldn't have to deal with at all in the meditation hall. If they would come in with the right attitude, I'm here to not think about anything except having fun. (laughs)
1: Yeah. Okay. Okay.
0: And so the only distinction then between doing that in the woods is, is that you've got, when you're in the woods, you've got to feed yourself. And so that would be the way to look at the retreat, is that's exactly what you're getting out of them, because all of the other, the, the opportunity for seclusion, the Dhamma, and the meditation hall, and all of that is of no value to you because you've got exactly the same thing out in the woods. The only thing that you don't have out in the woods is the grub. Yeah. So be, if you do go do the retreat, be extraordinarily grateful for getting that grub. <laughs> Something you don't have to think about. Yeah. So let's finish off now. I think that we pretty well covered this topic that uh, go with uh, a, a completely open mind to whatever retreat that you're going to, knowing that. The real point is, is to get yourself away from the world completely. Both with our objects, with the world itself, and with other people in the world so that you can get really into seclusion enough to where now you can pull out that last vestige of the world, the, the mind, <laughs> the old sand car, the, all that old built-up stuff so that we could just literally be here now in a pleasant time.
1: Yeah. Can I ask one final question before we wrap sure. up? Sure.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So I haven't done a physical retreat. I did an online one. Um, but I assume with the physical retreats, they like have a schedule that they staple to the wall so everyone knows what they're doing, right? I'm, ge- mm-hmm. I'm wondering, like, if you're doing a self retreat or you're off in the woods somewhere, um, do you use, would you like make up a schedule? Or is it more like sit until you're tired of sitting and then walk? and then walk until you're tired of walking, and then try sitting. Is it that kind of attitude? I don't know what you would do like that.
0: Um, Let me answer the question this way. Do you need a retreat uh, schedule? No, not really. (laughs) Okay. Do retreat centers need a retreat schedule? Well, they seem to think so. I don't know. (laughs) That's where the retreat schedule comes from is the fact that you've got a schedule getting up, you've got to schedule the meditation hall, you've got to schedule the uh, the lunch. So there's certain things throughout the day, breakfast, lunch, if you've got both, uh, an evening get-together, the Dhamma talks are scheduled. But when you're out on the retreat all by yourself, the only Dhamma talks you need to schedule is the one you're having right now. <laughs> yeah. So you don't need a schedule when you're off on your own. The schedule is because you've got a crowd there. An example of that would be, um, does a student need a schedule? And then the next question is, does the school need a schedule? The answer is the school needs a schedule. And if the student is going to go to school, he's got to apply with the schedule. But if he's sitting at home, he doesn't need the school schedule. Mm -hmm. So that should answer that.
1: You (laughs) don't really
0: need it. Makes sense, of course. Right. And this is um, more and more getting natural. So you could actually say that the schedule at the retreat is just one more level of artificialness that they need in order to organize a retreat. Right. Yeah. But in fact, if you uh, do the retreat all on your own, uh, food would be a matter of uh, daylight that in the old days and always has been, you don't cook at night. If you don't cook at night, you don't eat at night. (laughs) And that's how it's been for many, many centuries. Uh, So that would be one way of thinking about it, that you only eat when you're hungry. You could practice, in fact, eating just one meal a day. Yeah. And so getting off on your own in the seclusion would be something that I would highly recommend. And there are so many places you can do that. You can do it in the backyard of any temple in, in Thailand. You can do it in the backyard of any uh, Wat Thai in the United States. But you can also do it in any campground paid or any state park, any federal park, any of them that has camping. You've got a meditation retreat center.
1: <laughs> and it's probably uh, a little bit cheaper than your two thousand dollar uh
0: led, Exactly uh, retreat. so.
1: Yeah.
0: And I don't think that if you ate in the fanciest restaurant in town for one week in a row, you could rack up a two thousand dollar meal ticket.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Then maybe right. you have to had to sub- subtract the three or 400, but you can use that camping equipment over and over and over and over again. A tent's what, 100, $150, sleeping bag, you don't even need, Um, a few other things. So you can get by for fewer than 300 dollars. So that's the way to think about it is is that retreat means and seclusion is not necessarily a feature of a retreat center <laughs>
1: yeah
0: the that is almost artificial just like the schedules and everything else about it is kind of artificial including the teachings because they're set for just one group and that's always with the beginners maybe sometimes leaving a key ingredient or two out so that's how it is with uh, meditation retreats choose wisely <laughs> Where are you going to go? Okay, sounds good. Do some research. Find out what federal um, or state uh, campgrounds there are close by to you. Do some figure it out. Know for yourself where what are all your options.
1: Yeah, it sounds really fun doing it that way. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see you again, Brian.
1: All right. This has been great. Thank you very much.
0: Okay. See you. You have a good one.